You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me on this holiday of Sukkot, Chag Sameach. There's no question that for a lot of Jews, Chag Sukkot is their favorite holiday, just like camping out in the cozy sukkah, especially since it comes after Elul, which is followed by Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur. And that period from Elul up to Yom Kippur, it's like a heavy time. We're trying to become better, working on ourselves. It's a time of self-introspection. Day of reckoning is approaching and we're preparing ourselves. The shofar blasting, you know, you, you could feel the burden sometimes. And a lot of people would prefer skipping over Elul and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and go straight into Chag Sukkot. Sukkot comes around and it's like, okay, now we can just chill. Or let's say they would like to dive underneath the month of Elul, nosedive past Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and go straight into that sukkah and snuggle up there. And I wanted to open up by talking about something you might have heard about. There's a really great organization that does a lot of outreach and they're called Rosh Yudi. And they organized Yom Kippur prayers in the middle of Tel Aviv, Dizagov Square. And along came protesters, leftists, and they disrupted the Yom Kippur prayers. And they were pretty violent. We're talking about real clashes that erupted at Dizengorf Square on Sunday evening between hundreds of Tel Aviv residents and the organizers of the public Yom Kippur prayers. As the worshipers participated in the solemn Kol Nidre service, hundreds of protesters disrupted them. They were shouting, Busha, Busha, shame, shame. What was the shame? That there were petitions there, Mechitzot to separate between men and women. So they started knocking down these makeshift partitions. And according to one report, some female protesters, they pushed their way into the area where the men were and they started eating sandwiches in front of the worshipers who were fasting. Now, the reason the protesters went nuts is because they objected to the fact that there was a mechitza. The organizers of the event, they put up a Israeli flag as a mechitza you know, a division between the men and the women. They used it like a makeshift partition. And boy, that's what got the leftists upset. Because for them, there's no place for gender segregation in Tel Aviv. This is religious coercion. After all, they believe in, you know, gender fluidity. There's no difference between men and women. You can, you can change your gender. So what's this thing with mechitzot and partitions between men and women? Anyway, it got pretty violent, and the police, they had to mediate between the prayer organizers of Rosh Yudi and the protesters. And this went on and on during all the prayers, especially during the Ni'ila prayer, which is the pinnacle of Yom Kippur. These confrontations continued throughout, and the atmosphere in Dizengorf Square became very tense. So on Israel's holiest day, you had the violent protests of the left tearing down the makeshift partitions, disrupting the services all day. And so this is pretty symbolic that on the holiest day of the year, Jews are being attacked. The leftists were spitting on them. I mean, this probably wouldn't happen in any other country except for Israel, such anti-Semitism. Nevertheless, we still hear those calls for unity. Despite the atrocious behavior by these self-hating Jews, the typical response in the nationals camp is to continue to love and reach out to these people. That's the message that's coming forth. It's all about unity. That's the buzzword. These people are spitting on us, spitting on God, really. 
And we're going to kiruv them. We just have to keep loving them until they're just overwhelmed with love and they'll somehow come around. Now, these rabbis and leaders who champion the call for unity with these protesters, they bring sources. They have sources to back them up. And one of the more famous ones is a midrash in Leviticus Rabbah, which is very connected to the holiday of Sukkot. It's a midrash about the four species. And what the midrash does is that it compares the four species to the different sectors in Am Yisrael, calling for unity amongst them. And this is what the midrash says in Vayikra Rabbah. Just as the etrog, it has both taste and smell, do the Jewish people have within it people who have Torah and good deeds. The lulav, it has taste and no smell. And so too, there are people who have Torah and no good deeds. And then you have the hadas, which has smell, but it has no taste. And that's like the people with good deeds, but no Torah. And then you have the arava, which has no smell and no taste. That means you're talking about people who have no Torah and no good deeds. So what does God do to them? He can't destroy them, but rather... What happens? We tie them all up in one unit. And that's what we do with Arba Minim, right? We ma'agerotam, we tie them up together, the Arba Minim, the four species, and they atone for one another. So we see in this Midrash that each of the four species correspond to a different kind of Jew. The Etherog is the Tzadik with Torah and Mitzvot. The Lulav is the fellow with Torah, but no good deeds. And the Hadas represents the Jew with good deeds, but no Torah. And the Aravah is the fellow who doesn't have either one. And then Chag Sukkot, what do we do? We hold the Arba Minim, the four species all together, the Tzadikim together with the Rishayim. That's what the Midrash says. And because of this Midrash, many want to say that you see the Arava, those are the leftists, those are the Jews who have no Torah and no mitzvot, no smell and no taste. And so what people want to say now is the Arava, that's like the secular Jews in Israel who have no smell, who have no Torah, and no mitzvot. And what do we do in Chag Sukkot? We bind them together and shake them up because of unity. We love everybody. And you've probably heard this quoted over and over again in light of what's happening today between the right and the left, those that are for the judicial reforms versus those that are against it. In light of this tension amongst the Jewish people and the animosity between the two camps, this Midrash seems to be telling us Hey, we got to have unity. We should embrace the left. Got to hold them tight like the Arava is held together with the Etrog and the Hadas. Rabbi Benjamin Kahana wrote a piece for the Chag of Sukkot and it was called, Not Every Jew is an Arava. And it said something like this. You see, it's true that the Arava has no taste and smell, has no Torah or good deeds, but it still wants to be part of Am Yisrael, you see? The Aravah still wants to be part of the Arba Minim. He feels a shayachut to it, a belonging to it. He wants to be held together with it. He identifies with it. He wants to be near the tzaddik, which is symbolized by the etrog. Yeah, he might have no smell and taste, but he wants to absorb the Torah and the mitzvot, the smell and the taste from the etrog and the hadas and the lulav. He feels part of it. So what kind of Jew is the Aravah really? He wants to be part of the Jewish nation. He has an affinity to it. Okay, now let's take the radical left. Do they feel any kind of connection to the Jewish nation, to Yiddishkeit, to anything? 
Do they want to absorb the goodness of the Etrog and the Hadas and the Lulav? The Aravad described it as Midrash, who's not destroyed. He's not destroyed because the righteous atone for him. Yeah, they're Jews who have no Torah and no good deeds. And we're not talking about the cream of the crop. But again, we're talking about Jews who are part of the union of Am Yisrael, connected to them. And that's why the righteous can atone for them. But the radical, progressive left today, they sever themselves from the collective. They detest their own Jewishness. That's what you saw on Yom Kippur. That's why they attacked the Jewish worshippers on Yom Kippur. These are Jews who have crossed the line. They're on the side of the enemy. They're not in Arava. The Midrash isn't speaking about them because they don't want to be part of Kali Israel. And so these wicked people don't merit the atonement. The atonement is reserved for one who feels belonging to the collective of the Jewish nation. Now, it's really important to understand that most secular Jews, 90% of them, 95% of them, they are our avot. They are Jews who feel a belonging to the Jewish people and to the collective. The average secular Jew isn't happy with what happened this past Yom Kippur. He thinks it's a disgrace. I happened to talk to a bunch of secular soldiers at the junction, totally secular. And they thought it was absolutely disgusting what those protesters did. You know what they said? They said, you know, every day in Tel Aviv, you can hear from the Arab mosques, their music blaring and all their chanting from Lud and Ramle, where so many Arabs are living. If you're living in Tel Aviv, you're getting that every single day. But that doesn't bother these leftists. What bothers them is when Jews are praying. That's what these soldiers were telling me. Because like I said, your average Israeli secular Jew, he might not have Torah and mitzvot, but he has respect for the religion. He has respect for the traditions. Almost every Sephardi Jew, at least as a father or a grandfather who is religious, and most Ashkenazi Jews too, even though their grandfather might have been communists in Russia, even if they didn't come from a religious background, they're not against Judaism to such an extent. They don't agree with what happened. So we're talking about a radical fringe, a very small percentage of what secular Jews are. Most secular Jews are not like them. The average secular Israeli is an Arava. They can come in and join with the Etrog and the Lulav and Adas and absorb the Kedusha. But don't include the radical Erev Rav left into the mix. They do not represent the Arava. The Midrash was not talking about them. You know, at the very beginning of the Mishnah Bura, which is a book of Halacha, the very first page, it talks about how a Jew has to pray and he has to be humble. And it explains in one of the very first Halachas that when a Jew prays, he's got to do so with humility and self-nullification and not get into any quarrels with anybody, just mind his own business and stay away from any controversy and just think of Hashem. And then along comes the Chafetz Chaim in the Bior Halacha. It's a commentary on the code of Jewish law. And the Chafetz Chaim in Bior Halacha says like this, but if he's standing in a place of scorners, talking about this person who's praying, he's standing in a place of scorners who rise up against Torah and wish to make changes in the affairs of the city that will bring the people to leave God's will. What do you do then if you're trying to pray and you're being mocked? Well, it says like this, first you begin in peace. And if they do not listen to him, then it is a mitzvah to hate them and quarrel with them and ruin their design in every way he can. And so that's on the very first page of the Mishnah Brura. Imagine that. It's exactly what happened last week on Yom Kippur. You're standing in a place of scorners 
and clowns who are rising up against the Torah, the Chafetz Chaim says, in that situation, don't be humble. Don't be humble now. It's not the time. In such a situation, when you're facing people like that, it's a mitzvah to hate them, he says, and quarrel with them and fight them and ruin their design in every way you can. Wow. Nothing about unity there. You see, too many Jews and rabbis have turned Judaism into, into one big Beatles song. But it's not true. All you need is love. This is a time to love. This is a time to hate. We just read that in Kohelet this past Shabbat. Lesnow, Lehov, time to hate, time to love. And the Chafetz Chaim, imagine that. He says you got to hate them. Again, check it out in the Mishnah Brura. Every religious Jew has on his shelf the Mishnah Brura. So you can check that out, the very first page in the Bior Halacha. Because again, we're dealing with Rishoyim, with wicked people. And they're dangerous people. And you're not supposed to unify with them. You're supposed to fight them. You know, speaking of wicked and treacherous Jews, on the holiday of Sukkot, we read from the Haftorah, from the prophets, about the wars of Gog and Magog. Why do we do that in the Chag of Sukkot? Well, I'll get that in a minute. But before we get into that, why we read about Armageddon on the holiday of Sukkot, I wanted to bring a verse from Zechariah Yudalid, which is one of the chapters on Gog and Magog, where the nations come upon the Jewish people to destroy us. And in the end, they are completely wiped out. It says in Zechariah chapter 14, a very chilling verse. It says, V'gam Yehuda t'lachem b'Yerushalayim. That is, in this war, where all the nations come upon the Jewish people, in the land of Israel, Gam Yehuda t'lachem b'Yerushalayim. Yehuda too will fight against Jerusalem. So we see right there that, yeah, Jews are going to go to the other side. Yehuda, that's the Jews, they're going to fight against Jerusalem. So we have a clear situation that in the end of days, you're going to have traitors who are going to fight against us. It's right there in the prophecies, what we read on the Chag of Sukkot. I wanted to talk more about the holiday of Sukkot, to get that to the essence of it. And Rabbi Kahana writes in his book, The Jewish Idea, talks about the holiday of Sukkot, and he brings a verse from the prophet Amos. It's part of a song we sing on Sukkot. It says, on that day, I will rise up the fallen sukkah of David, sukkah hanafelet, the fallen sukkah. And many times when we talk about God's greatness and his might, scripture calls his kingdom that of David's hut, Sukkah David, David's hut. I mean, when you talk about a hut, a sukkah, doesn't that bring to mind weakness and unsturdiness? I mean, if you want to talk about Hashem protecting us and Hashem being strong and great, we should be using the terms like fortress or stronghold or palace. Those are symbols of strength and power. Why do we talk about huts? And in Psalms 27, in King David's prayer, he says, for he conceals me in his hut, who on that day of evil. Why would David say he conceals me in his sukkah? Why would David say it that way, that Hashem hides me or conceals me in his sukkah? Say he protects me in his palace. I feel like I'm in a stronghold. Hashem's protecting me so great. Hashem has given me such protection. So again, why does David call Hashem's strength and might by the name Hut, Sukkah? And why did the sages add to our evening prayers, spread over us your hut of peace, your Sukkah? That's the strongest thing you can protect me with? I mean, come on, Sukkahs are flimsy. Why should that be the symbol of Hashem's protection? 
Why should we request something weak and transient rather than requesting a fortress or a tower or a palace? So Rabbi Ghana answers it like this. The word sukkah comes from the word schach. What is schach? That covers you, it protects you. It screens you. And Hashem purposely wanted it that way, that the weak transient hut, that will symbolize the power and defense and salvation of Israel. The point is, elu some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will invoke the name of the Lord our God. The point is that Israel facing so many enemies, much mightier than Israel is, they'll have nothing to fear if they trust in God to protect them. And that's why precisely the seemingly flimsy hut was established to symbolize God's power and might. It's precisely the sukkah, the symbol of weakness and, and vulnerability that symbolizes God's omnipotence and that there's no need for a fortress or a palace. Because even in a flimsy sukkah, God can be victorious and take his revenge against the nations. After all, the state of Israel is nothing more than a sukkah surrounded by 70 wolves. And God shelters us just like he sheltered us in the desert in our sukkah, just as he led us in that terrifying desert where there were snakes and vipers and scorpions and the water. And so that's the main lesson of the huts, of the sukkah, that we have to completely trust in God that he and his clouds are capable of protecting the weak sukkah of Israel. And we don't have to fear the nations and the snakes and the vipers. And that leads us to what I mentioned earlier, why the sages ordained that on the first day of sukkah and the Sabbath that falls during Cholomoed, and this year there is no Shabbat Cholomoed, but usually there is. And both of those days, what do we read? We read the Haftorah regarding the wars of Gog and Magog in Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 38. That's what we read. Those are two prophecies of the war of Gog and Magog. Now, why do we read that on Sukkot? Isn't Sukkot supposed to be that warm and fuzzy holiday where we're nice and cozy in our hut? Why are we reading Gog and Magog? What does Armageddon have to do with this cute little holiday? But after what the rabbi wrote, we know why. That the sukkah, the symbol of weakness, transience, and exile, and lack of certainty about tomorrow, precisely on Sukkot, when we leave our homes and our permanent structures representing the land of Israel, kind of going into exile, into temporary dwellings, we read Gog and Magog, where the nations attack the fallen, flimsy hut of Israel, and they are defeated and destroyed by the Almighty. And so if we're talking about those two Haftarot, those two prophecies about Gog and Magog, one that appears in Ezekiel 38 and one in Zechariah 14, I want to talk a little bit about that. First of all, these two prophecies are two totally different scenarios of what's going to happen on that day when the nations come upon us. And by the way, it's going to happen because if you believe in the prophecies, well, this is a prophecy too. So everybody's worrying about the world being against us. Well, they're going to be against us because that's what it says here. It says they're going to come like a cloud upon Israel. So either you believe the prophecies or you don't. We see that all the other redemption prophecies are coming to fruition. We see the ingathering of the exiles and the prophecies of the land bearing fruit. It's all happening. So you don't think that this one will? Why? Because it's scary. And think about it. Don't the nations deserve punishment? for all the horrors they inflicted on the Jewish people over the years. So yeah, it's going to happen, just like all the other prophecies did. And so when people say, no, Israel can't 
expel the Arabs or you know, build the temple or do something that will get the world angry, the whole world will be against us. Well, yeah, the world is going to be against us. That's what these prophecies are telling us. The only question is that when they do go against us, will we be with God on our side or without God on our side? But let's get back to the two different scenarios of how it's going to happen. So what's the difference between these two prophecies? Well, in Ezekiel 38, the nations who come against us, they get crushed and Israel enjoys a miraculous victory. I'll just read the beginning of it. It's just like this. And on that day, that Gog will come upon Admat Yisrael. They're going to come upon the land of Israel. And by the way, for those who say that Gog and Magog already happened, a lot of people say that, rabbis say it, they say that the Holocaust, uh, World War II, they say that World War II, where you had a world war, that was Gog and Magog already. That was Armageddon, World War II. And so we don't have to worry about it. It already happened. But not true. Because it says clearly in the very first verse here, in Ezekiel 38, that they're going to come al Admat Yisrael. This battle is going to happen in the land of Israel after the Jews have come back. And as the verses go on, we make quick work out of the enemy. They fall in a heap better than the Six-Day War. But the other prophecy of Gog and Magog, which we also read in Chagas Sukkot, in Zechariah 14, it's something else entirely. He says like this, Vasafti et kol el Yerushalayim And I gathered all the nations against Jerusalem for war. Again, against Jerusalem. It's going to take place in Israel, not in Europe. So God's going to gather them all to come against us. And they're going to attack the city. They're going to wipe out the houses. And they're going to ravage the women. And half the city is going to go into exile. I mean, this is a horrible scenario. In this Gogamagog prophecy, we have the verse I mentioned earlier. This is the scenario where Jews are going to betray their own people. Jews are going to fight against Jerusalem, it says. So the thing is, why do you have two different prophecies? And the answer is that the redemption can come in one of two ways. It can come swiftly, or it can come in its time. That is, it'll come because it has to come, but we didn't merit it. So yeah, the redemption is going to come. It's going to happen. But how it happens, the quality of that redemption, will it come together with great tragedy? Or will it come swiftly and majestically? Well, that depends on us. And that's why you always have two scenarios. You have the Messiah on the donkey and the Messiah on the clouds. Which one is going to be? Depends on us. And that's where the free choice kicks in. The redemption, it's going to happen. But how it happens depends on us. That's it for me today. Don't forget to catch my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, it's called. Also, we started launching a small campaign to get the word out and help me spread the Jewish truth far and wide. I mean, I know how to technically post up a podcast and put up on Facebook or whatever, but to take that next step and get a little bit bigger, I'm going to need your help. If you like what you hear, you'll see a link on the bottom of this page to donate for the purpose of spreading the ideas I've been telling you during these podcasts. So click on the link on the bottom of the page and help us spread the Torah the way it was meant to be taught. And I'll be back next week.